pray, and then we're going to look into God's Word this morning. God, we, uh, we have acknowledged that we want to be the kind of people who turn our hearts to you. We've also acknowledged that uh, we slip and fall and then get up and run again, and slip and fall and get up and run again. But in the deepest part of our hearts, I believe that uh, every one of us wants that. We want to be the kind of people who turn our hearts to you, and we know that we can't do that apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. And we believe he is present here. He's present in all of us who have opened our hearts to him. He's, a present, ar- he's present around those who are not yet quite sure yet if they want to give Jesus that place in their life. But Holy Spirit, we just ask you to be active and give us uh, a receptivity to whatever you want us to hear and how you want us to respond. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. I told you I used to teach junior high and high school math, and uh, 90%, that's the number for the day, 90%, most of you would have been happy with 90% in your math classes, correct? All right? 90% would be really, really good if you're a free throw shooter. 90% will, if you pass the driving test with 90%, you get your driver's license. All right? What else? Somebody, what else? Where is 90% good enough? Where else? Somebody else. What would you be happy with 90% doing what? What's that? Batting average. That'd be like unheard of. It'd be like a batting average of 900. What? Nine, 90%. Somebody else. <laughs> Most of you are just happy with 90% in math. We'll just leave it at that, all right? 90% usually is pretty good. 90% success in a class, 90% success at a test. However, those of your parents, if I said, hey, my kids are 90% obedient. Some of you might be like, I wish. But most of us would be like, you know, they do 90% of what you ask, but the last 10% just seems to not get there. Or if any of you who are married, or any of you get married, and in your vows you comment about a 90% commitment, it probably won't, the ceremony probably won't finish happily, right? 90% works well in a lot of areas of our lives. It doesn't work in the relational areas of our lives. In the, you may or may not have noticed in the email Dan said out that title this morning's sermon, it's just a one kind of standalone sermon, it's just something like God put on my heart to speak about this week is uh, loving God 100%, and then I cross out the 100% and put 90. Because I wonder how many times I or you are content with 90% obedience to God, 90% relational commitment, 90%, because we think, well, that's really pretty good. It's above average. It's way above average. And we feel pretty good about that. And we've kind of found that groove of 90%. So it's enough to feel good, and it's enough good that the 10% that we're not really addressing, we can kind of pretend isn't there. I'm good at that. I'm sure some of you are good at it as well. But what does it mean that God wants all of us, and what does it mean sometimes we kind of do the 90% game with God, either willfully or sometimes even unknowingly kind of ignoring 10% that he wants a greater part of our commitment to him, all right? Now, to do that, we're going to go Way back in history, go to the next slide. You, they were going to go to this part of the world. This is, modern, this is Israel. And I just put this up because I want people, to, those of you who are geographically uh, deficient, I want you to make sure you know what that is. You go, let's zoom in a little bit. 
This is modern-day Israel, the nation of Israel. But two and a half thousand years ago, go to the next one, it looked like this. You'll notice the top blue part, you probably can't read it, the, the bluish part says the kingdom of Israel, the pinkish part is the kingdom of Judah. Now let me explain this for a second. Old Testament overview, all right? Old Testament, you start with uh, Adam and Eve, you go through Noah, you go through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you go through God's people being in promised land, you go through the book of Judges, those were leaders, you go through them wanting a king, and then King Saul is the first big king of the nation of Israel, the whole piece. King Saul, King David, King Solomon. King Solomon is the king of all of Israel. Because of disobedience in Solomon's life, some other things, God decides, God splits the kingdom of Israel. There's 12 tribes. He takes two is the southern part, 10 is the northern part. God didn't split it just like that. It was because some other things politically happening, but God was behind it all. So after Solomon, he was the last unified king of what they now call Israel and Judah. Judah is the southern part where Jerusalem is. Israel is the northern part. So now there becomes this division of God's people, and there's a whole line of kings of Israel and a whole line of kings of Judah. It's what's called the divided kingdom, the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles is where we are with that, all right? So go to the next slide. So in the north, and if, you, if, if you've ever gone through those books, which they are, can be kind of tedious at times, the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, had 19 kings, the book of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles tell us. Every single one of them was a bad king. Every single one of them, what the Bible says is they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I use the word wicked or evil. So not a real good track record for the northern part. Because the northern part actually started with a king that was very idolatrous. And the rest of them followed. Southern part, Judah, had 20 kings. A little bit better batting average here. Eight of them good. Twelve of them bad. All kinds of interesting names like Jehoram and Pekiah and... Uzziah and all kinds of names like that. I'm going to focus on just three kings today. Three kings, all very different in how God seemed to view them and their leadership. And my guess is that every one of us will find ourselves in one of these life models. All right? First one, Ahab. Ahab uh, is one of the many kings that is listed as a bad king. And what it says in First Kings 16 is, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now that phrase, in whatever form of whatever paraphrase you have, shows up many, 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 many times. And the evil, or the wickedness that was referred to, and sometimes the word wicked shows up, is they, were, they allowed not only themselves, they allowed the people to give themselves over to idolatry. And you might think, wait a minute, idolatry, that seems like a past thing. Idolatry is anything you or I give ourselves to to give us meaning, life, and joy. All right? So when you put it that way, there's going to be a lot more things hit closer to home. Anything you look to that you think you have to have for meaning, life, and joy, because you're not sure that God's giving you all the meaning, life, and joy that he's promised, so you need to just in case find something else, whether it's certain kinds of entertainment, certain habits you have, whatever. So idolatry is anything you give your heart to for meaning, life, and joy, because you're not sure God's going to pull through. And over and over, and in those cases, they had shrines to other gods. They had these monuments. It was called an Asherah pole. 
It was kind of an idol, but it had all kinds of implications about sensuality and immoral sexuality. So there were things like that. There were these places they would allow a Baal, which was like a, a, an idol, like a calf, like a cow. They worshiped because they thought that's how, if you worship that, that's how God provides. And again, we don't have Baal idols set up in the middle of our house or in our town, but there's times where probably you and I look to other things to take care of our needs, financial material, because we're not quite sure if God's going to do it. So we have to take matters into our own hands. So we can all be very Baalistic without having a gold calf sitting in the middle of our living room. All right? Ahab was one of those who simply says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Ahab even sacrificed his children on an altar to appease a god. So we're talking evil and wicked, but there are evil in that same definition. There are evil and wicked people today, people that do not give themselves over to God in any way, but they give themselves to other things to find meaning, life, and joy. Right? So that's category one, is Ahab. And like I said, there are all kinds of bad kings that have all kinds of interesting names. And if you just did a search in your Bible on evil in the sight of the Lord, you'd probably find, I can't remember what their numbers were, 20, 25 kings that just didn't do a good job. I mean, not just not a good job, a bad job. That was Ahab. Next one. Next one is Josiah. Josiah gets the blue ribbon for all the kings in the divided kingdom. Not that God gives blue ribbons, but let's just say if he did, he would get one. And the phrase that appears about Josiah and only eight other kings out of the whole, out of the whole boatload of 39, only eight of them does God say he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. He did what was evil. He did what was pleasing. And then it goes on to say, he turned to the Lord with all, and the word for all there means all, 100%, completely, full. He turned his heart to God completely. Now, I'm going to read a portion of 1 Kings, 2 Kings now, we're in 2 Kings, where it talks about all the things Josiah did that put him in that status of pleasing in the Lord's sight. All right? Again, keep in mind that Ahab and many other kings, the wicked ones, allowed all these idols to exist, not only for their own worship, but for the worship of those under their influence. All right? So now I'm going to read from uh, 1 Kings, I mean 2 Kings 23. And here let me just read through some of the things Josiah did. First of all, he rebuilt the temple. He repaired and restored so the first thing he did was repaired and restored the temple. But then here's some other things he did. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands and laws with all his heart and soul. Then he instructed others to remove from the Lord's temple all the articles that were used to worship Baal, Asherah, and the powers of the heavens. So removing things that didn't belong there. He had all these things burned outside of Jerusalem on the terraces of the Kidron Valley. I'm reading from 2 Kings 23. And he carried the ashes away to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests who had been appointed by the previous kings of Judah, for they had offered sacrifices at the pagan shrines throughout Judah and even in the vicinity of Jerusalem. They had also offered sacrifices to Baal and to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations. The king removed 
the Asherah pole from the Lord's temple and took it outside Jerusalem to the Kinder Valley where he burned it. You see a theme here? Removing, burning, removing. He also tore down the living quarters of the male and female shrine prostitutes that were inside the temple of the Lord where the women wore coverings for the Asherah pole. Josiah brought to Jerusalem all the priests who were living in other towns of Judah. He also defiled the pagan shrines. In other words, any of the idolatries that were given to the people, he defiled them. He destroyed them, and he actually kind of rendered them uh, useless. He destroyed the shrines at the entrance to the gate of Joshua. This gate was located to the left of the city gate. The priests who had served at the pagan shrines were not allowed, not allowed to serve at the Lord's altar in Jerusalem but they were allowed to eat unleavened bread with the other priests. The king defiled the altar. He removed other things. He burned other things. He tore down, destroyed. I'm just reading words now, other verbs. Tore down, destroyed, smashed, desecrated, smashed, desecrated, tore down, burned down, burned, demolished, executed. He executed the false priests. I mean, this is what somebody does who's given themselves with all their heart and soul and strength. And you might say, well, it sounds kind of negative. There are things, obstacles in your life and my life that can only be removed if you remove them. They can only be destroyed if you destroy them. They can only be demolished if you demolish them. There's no other way to get re- remove obstacles in your life. And it's amazing when you read this chapter or two about Josiah, how much... He did good things, restoring, rebuilding. And there are parts of you and me that we need to restore and rebuild. But there's also things in our life and around our life that need to be removed, demolished, smashed, burned. Maybe not literally smashed and burned, but with that same sense of... Well, I should call it this way. It's a spiritual violence. And please don't misunderstand my word violence here. I'm not talking about physical violence. But there's a violence involved in removing anything that's attached to our hearts that it's got its life there that doesn't belong there. And there's a ripping away that has to happen. Because when God purifies your life or my life, he doesn't always do it gently. If I have, you know, some of you have had cancer. When they go in to remove a t- tumor, they try to get it all. And you don't tell the doctor, be gentle. You say, get it all. And removing requires discomfort, requires pain, requires some incisions. And it's interesting that that's what Josiah did. There's one other king in the whole book that talked that talk this way that also Hezekiah. But Josiah was like the blue ribbon guy. Now, my guess is nobody here is at 100% of your spiritual capacity to love God and obey God. My guess is very few, if any, would be in that wicked, totally hard to God category. This next category is where I think a lot of us live, struggle, and sometimes find great success. Amaziah. He was one of the kings, one of the eight that was listed as a king that did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, but this was also a line added, go to the next one, but not wholeheartedly. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, but not wholeheartedly. And there were five other kings that were in that category. Pleasing in the Lord's sight, not wholeheartedly. And you know what comes next then? 
they did not remove the pagan shrines and the idols to other gods. They did not deal with false worship. Some of them did partway. One of them even had to depose his own grandmother. She was like the queen mother, kind of like England or whatever. She was the queen mother and she was an idolater. He deposed his own grandmother. But then it said he did that, but he didn't finish the job. He didn't want to tear down some of those shrines that were in the countryside. Didn't want to do that. Now, let's think about motive there. If you and I are the king or the queen, I would guess Josiah probably made some enemies in tearing and destroying and demolishing things in and around his life. So to some degree, I may not want to deal with some of those idolatries that we all struggle with. And again, I'm not talking about golden calves in your living room. I'm talking about idolatries we have to money and sex and entertainment and all kinds of other things that, that creep in almost unnoticed and they start taking that extra 10% of our lives up because we think there's life there because we're not sure if we're getting all we need to get from God. So Amaziah did what was pleasing the Lord's sight, but not wholeheartedly. And then, again, what you read in the next few lines and paragraphs, he did not remove the shrines. He did not deal with this. He dealt with some of it, but there were a few things, and we don't know why, but there were a few things that they just didn't. Probably fear was a big motive, because it's pretty fearful to take away something that has been a source of life for you. It's pretty fearful to address that in the life of someone you love that you know someone needs to tell them that's killing you. It's not easy to have those kind of conversations. So whether it was Amaziah or some of the other kings that were pleasing, and every one of those kings, of those six kings that were pleasing the Lord's sight, they end with one of them gets really proud, and then one of them stops trusting the Lord. One of them starts worshiping idols, hoping that he'll get the strength and power to defeat an enemy because he's not sure if God's going to pull through. So they start off really well, and they hit the 90% mark, and then they get stuck, whether it's by fear or distrust or arrogance or pride. And not that those things disable you. David, King David, he has adultery and murder in his life. But the Bible says he loved God wholeheartedly. A wholehearted person doesn't mean you have a perfect life. It means when, you, when sin is exposed to you, you deal with it correctly with God. You turn away from it, you confess, you repent, and God breathes new life back into you. So we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about responsiveness to God. And these six kings that were pleasing, but not all the way, were pleasing and responsive in a lot of ways, but then there seemed to be a, a corner of their heart that they weren't quite sure if they were going to give that over to God because they weren't quite sure if God would be enough to provide them all they needed in life. So they need to keep some degree of control. And I'm guessing, if you're like me, Amaziah may have quite a kinship to you. So we read about these kings, and we think, oh, how stupid they were. But it's like, wait a minute, let's stop for a second. We can be just like that. Now go to the next slide here. Here's the question then. And again, 
feel like God put this on my heart this week to talk about. Not because I know of anybody's undealt with secret sins or secret idols. Some of which may not even be blatantly sinful in and of itself, but God may have told you, you need to stop doing that. I mean, I knew one guy that felt like God was telling him to stop eating chocolate. Not because it was sinful, because he felt like he was addicted to it. I knew another guy that said God told him to stop drinking alcohol, period. Not because alcohol is evil, but because he had felt like it had become a source of comfort and addiction. This is, a, this is a pastor I knew that said this. But what might be in your 10%? You know, Matt Nussbaum was pleased in the eyes of the Lord, but he did not blank. I'm not asking you to, don't fill in my blank, fill in your own there. You get it on there? You might have things for me. Tell me those later. All right. Is there something in my life, something in your life, that God's been addressing you to remove, to get rid of, to cut off? Is there something in your life, maybe it's an ambition. Maybe you've told God, I will serve you, but it has to be this way. I want to see it end up this way. And God, if it doesn't end up this way, I'm not all in. Or God, I will serve you. I love you and I give you my whole heart. But when it comes to my wallet, that's mine. That's my area of life. And I will make that happen. But I love you on Sundays and I'll sing and I'll read the Bible. But Or maybe it's habits, secret habits, maybe it's sexual habits, where you're convinced that that's the only source of life and joy you're going to get, and you're doing it outside the boundaries of God. Because you're not sure if God's going to pull through. You may be married, you may not be married, but you may be doing things and engaging in things that to you brings you life, or at least for a temporary season, but you know deep down that's not where God wants you, and that's not the kind of life he wants you to have. So I don't know. I don't know where your 10% is. God knows. And maybe you know. Maybe there's something God's kind of been saying to you, and you keep pushing back. He pushes back. You push back. He pushes back. You, you know, you play that game. I've played that game with God before. I, I still do at times. Um, go to the next slide. There's an old hymn that some of you might know. Um, All to Jesus I Surrender. How many actually would say they know that song? All to Jesus I Surrender. It was written by a guy 100 years ago. Um, I don't have his name on the top of my head, but his name is Judson Vandeveter. He was a famous, at that time, he had, he had quite a bit of success as an artist and an art teacher and was really wanting to pursue that part of his life. He felt like God was nudging him pretty strongly to become engaged in full-time ministry. Now, I'm not saying that full-time ministry is what God wants for everybody, but in this guy's case, that was his struggle. God was saying, walk away from that as your vocation, and I want you to go after this. He was apparently very gifted as an evangelist, talking to people about Jesus. He wrote this song in the midst of his struggle, where he realized my only option is I'll surrender myself to Jesus. Now, what's hard about that is when you surrender your desires to Jesus, it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't the psalm say you give us the desires of our heart, Jesus? Don't you give us the desires of our heart, and then you ask me to surrender that? Yeah, because maybe there's a desire that's greater that he's going to fulfill that you don't even know you have. See, Christianity is not about squelching desire. It's about God fulfilling our desire, but maybe not in the exact way we think it's going to be. But the song obviously doesn't say 90% to Jesus I surrender. 
And this is one of those songs, maybe you don't think like me, but I think about this. I always think about these truth and advertising kind of songs because when I sing this song, maybe you do too, I feel a little bit hypocritical. I'm not sure if I could say all. I think so. But then certain things start streaming on the movie of my mind, and I was like, well, yeah, maybe. You know, 90% to Jesus, I surrender. 90% to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him sometime in his presence they live. I surrender 90%. I surrender 90%. 90% to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender 91, maybe. Okay, after today, after, you know. Right? I mean, it's one of those things that you can feel, understandably, hypocritical when you're singing songs like this because it seems like it's talking about a kind of life that we want but don't know we have. Let's go on one other verse because I like the, the lyrics. Um, All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior holy thine. Fill me with thy Holy Spirit. May I know thy power divine. Seems like there's some really strong connection to 100% surrender and the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Seems like over and over in the stories of Scripture, those who are totally given up to the heart, their heart to God, 100%, not 95, not 98, not 91, those were the people that it seemed like God then fills. And, he, and with, like in this case with Josiah and Hezekiah, the two kings that were pleasing and did what they were supposed to do, in two different scenarios, both of them prayed, and God says, and I hear their prayers. I hear them. God, he's basically I'm close to them. I know these people because they know me. Because we're not, we don't obey just for the sake of obedience. If we're doing that, that's legalism. That's Pharisees. I will obey because I'm supposed to obey. I mean, none of us want our kids to obey for the sake of obedience. Some of us may settle for that, but some of us, we don't really want that. We want them to obey because they understand that will be that will lead them to a more fully satisfactory, abundant kind of joy-filled life. Go to the next slide. One of the things Jesus says in John, and I'm going to end with this. He says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, same word translated, obeys them, is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them. And here's what happens to people who obey God 100%. Jesus says, I will show myself to them. I will show myself to them. What would it be, what would it be like for you to trust God and say, I'm going to surrender everything. I don't know all that's in me, but I'm going to say, God, anything you bring up, I will give over to you. And that's a scary prayer because you don't know what you're agreeing to. It's like signing a document without a blank document and then God writes in the details. But that's often how it is to follow Jesus. But if the end product is Jesus will show himself to you in intimate, personal, powerful ways, he will be with you and show himself to you. What would it be like for your life? What would it be like if there was a church like that? That if the reputation of a church like Exodus would be, Jesus is there. It seems like the Holy Spirit shows up when they're there. And the Holy Spirit will show up where there are people who surrender. And, you know, it's not about, the Holy Spirit doesn't show up at the church that has the best preaching, the best music, and the nicest building. Holy Spirit shows up, Jesus says, his spirit shows up 
in the lives of those who obey him and give their hearts to him and surrender any false idols to him. You know, I've been working on this this week and thinking this through. There are a couple ambitious idols that I feel like God's asked me to kind of let go of. And maybe you have other idols you feel like God's asked you to let go of. And maybe you're playing this tug of war with God. And um, you can keep playing the game if you want to end up like an Amaziah or an Uzziah or other kings that were pleasing, but yet fought with God with the last 10%. Or you can be like Josiah or Hezekiah or be like the person that Jesus talks about. You let go of it all. You trust that God will take care of you. And then the promise of Jesus is, I will show myself to you. So, let me pray. Let's pray. God, we... um, We want to surrender to you. At least I'm convinced that majority of the people here at least want to want to want to surrender to you. Some of us here want to want to surrender to you. Some of us want to surrender to you. Some of us are at that point where we're, we're, we're opening ourselves up to you in the fullest way we know how. But wherever we are, God, we want you to know that. And would you increase our trust for you? And reduce our fighting against you. Because we want to see you. We want to know you. Jesus, you said that you promised us joy and abundance and peace. We want that. But we want it only in the way that you want to give it to us. And that is when we give ourselves to you. Um, Here's what I want us to do. Stephanie, you go back to the slide with that opening part of the song, All to Jesus I Surrender. If you can find that up there again. I don't... Yeah. Just everybody stand with me for a second. This is something I just felt like God asked me to do. If, if there's something in your life, or if you feel like God's asked you to make that extra 10% surrender, we're not going to assume anything wicked or evil about you. And not everybody may feel that way. There may be something that you feel like God's just asked you... We're going to sing this just a cappella, all right? And if that's you, I'm going to ask you to kind of stop, come stand in the center aisle, all right? feels awkward. You might think, why do I have to move my body to do that? You don't, but there's something about your body moving that etches into your heart a commitment you know you want to make. So if there's something that you would say, yeah, I feel like there's, either I haven't fully surrendered or there's something I know God wants me to surrender, all right? We're going to sing this through once, maybe twice, and I'll start it off. And if that's you, I want you to move to the center aisle. No embarrassment, no shame. Actually, we'll honor you. So, all right. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior, 
I surrender all. Just the chorus one more time. If you know it well enough, let's close our eyes. Uh, I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Everybody keep their eyes closed. Those in the center aisle, I want you to look up at me. Everybody else keep your eyes closed. God will honor, he will, he will honor your desire to let go. And let this be etched somehow in your memory when those times come where you wrestle with the idols or you wrestle with, but God will honor this of you. He will honor your desire and your commitment. He sees this, and I believe this is pleasing in his sight. All right, why don't you close your eyes, we'll pray together. God, these sons and daughters of yours standing here in the middle, and even the rest of us, but those especially in the middle, I believe what they're doing is pleasing in your sight. Just like David when he turned from his adultery and his murder, and then you said he was a man after your own heart. We don't get that, but we love that, that you're a God who forgives. And you give us the power and the courage and the patience to let go of things that we've so thought we needed as our pacifiers. So God, for these, I pray that you would give them the courage, and you said you would. You said those who want to obey, you will give them your Holy Spirit in greater measure. Pray that for these people here today. And you would give them the courage and the resolve and the trust to do what you've asked them to do. And then you, God, you said you promised that you would show themselves to to them. And would you do that? And we ask this all in your name. Amen. Okay, everybody else have a seat. Thank you. We finish every Sunday with uh, communion. Let me just have a quick statement, too. I, I was wrestling up here with, I felt like God was asking me to call people to respond, and I didn't want to, because I thought I might be embarrassed if nobody came. So even I wrestle with, I mean, just like you do, I all, we all wrestle with these things of God telling us to do. And I didn't, none of these people were prompted or paid to go up here, just so you know. I mean, of course you know that. But what I'm saying is we all wrestle with, you want me to do what? That might look silly. I might look stupid. Maybe you don't think that way, but I do. When God asks to do something that's going to be stretching to you. So we have communion every week, and we do that because we are absolutely committed to the reality that we can only be the kind of people we want to be with the life, the supernatural life of Jesus inside of us. And communion something that Jesus instituted his last supper, is this symbolic, mystical way that we are reminded of that, that only when I have the spirit, when, I, when I'm receptive to, receptive to the life of Jesus in me, only when I'm there can I have the power to be the fully alive, fully obedient, fully surrendered, fully, fully joyful, peaceful, and all those things that we want in life. We can only do that with the power of Jesus. So, the communion table is welcome to anybody here. Perfection isn't the standard. Receptivity to the Holy Spirit is. Openness to whatever God wants you to do or stop doing. Here's how we do it. We'll have people at the center aisle and the side aisles. They'll offer you the bread. Tear off a piece. Um, offer you the cup. The way we do it here is dip it in. Most people eat it right away. Some table people take it back to their seats. Fine with, fine with the other way you want to do it. We do that as we're singing. So uh, as, as soon as we start singing, you're welcome to come on up. So Jesus, we're grateful that you gave yourself for us.
We're grateful that you broke through a barrier and then you led us to experience what you, the Bible calls a new and living way that's devoid of the shame and the legalism of religion, but it's full of the life and power of following Jesus. That's the kind of people we want to be, and we're grateful, Jesus, that you opened that door for us. We ask this in your name. Amen.